This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome to the program and welcome to an introduction, I guess this will be for a lot of listeners, to a philosopher who's not well known outside of Europe, but I think you'll agree by the end of the program that his relative obscurity in the Anglosphere is something that really needs to change. This is a conversation about Gunther Anders, a German philosopher of the mid to late 20th century, whose work on media and technology was quite revolutionary in its own time, but really stunningly prophetic in the way that it anticipates modern technology in our world of digitally mediated reality. There's so much to say about Gunther Anders. His body of work is sprawling and complex, and just the story of his life on its own would take up way more time than we have here. So I guess I'm doing something of a Gunther Anders 101 here with Chris Muller, who's a senior lecturer in cultural studies and media at Macquarie University in Sydney. Chris Muller is a scholar of Gunther Anders. He's been translating the work of Gunther Anders into English, and he's been involved in the production of a podcast on Gunther Anders, which is simply one of the best things I've listened to in a really long time. And I'll give you some details about that a little later in the program. In researching this episode, I found that the more I read about Gunther Anders, the more I started to uh, despair about how <laughs> how I was going to be able to present his work in, in a succinct and digestible fashion. But then I realised that's not my job. I can, I can ask Chris Muller to do this. So let's begin with a sort of summary, if we can. If I ask you to tell me about Gunther Anders, just in a brief outline to somebody who has never heard of him before, just in terms of the key ideas in his work, how would you describe him? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. As you say, he wrote so much, but um, he is best known as a thinker of the nuclear situation, so of the advent of nuclear weapons, of technology, and for his harrowing visions of a world without us, so a world in which our relationship to technology has created an uninhabitable environment. Um, his most famous book was published in 1956, and it opens on a reflection on um, what he calls Promethean shame. So the feeling of being outsmarted, outperformed, or somehow inadequate whilst we interact with a machine. So I kind of mention this because there's a real emphasis on emotion, on how we see and feel our own acts how we relate to ourselves and how technology is changing all of this at a, a really rapid pace. Um, so his key idea, I guess, in that context would be that we're creating a world that we're unable to kind of intuit, understand, anticipate, and that our world is kind of running out of control because of that. Now, that's, I guess, his most famous strand of thought. A really additional and important thing to mention is that He's a really important thinker of exile and the emigre experience. So in 1933, just a few days after Hitler's rise to power, Anders was forced into exile and was a stateless refugee, lost his passport, his right to work, what he called his life permit. So, And, and that really had a profound influence on the way he conducts philosophy. Um, so the experience of what he calls living a stammering life, right, of, of being in a foreign context, a different language and being kind of spoken down to in that way. Um, so that's a really, if we think of that phrase, a world without us, in that context, it means, oh, not being permitted to the world, not being granted access. So that experience is very central. And then um, I know it's no longer brief, but maybe one, one additional little um, uh, 
twist is that he's also really concerned with music, musical li uh, listening, literature, art, um, and that he was a creative poet, uh, novelist, all these kind of things. And these profound reflections on language and, and again, how we kind of experience ourselves and the world shape a really big part of his work. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I mean, it's it's very it's very complex stuff. It's very hard to boil down to a nice set of philosophical principles. Let's maybe just quickly mention some of the personal and intellectual networks that he was a part of as a way of locating him within a particular 20th century milieu because he was he was connected to some really key philosophers and writers at various points in his life. Can you run me through some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Günther Anders was actually born Günther Stern, so he was the, in 1902, he was the son of a very famous intellectual couple called Clara and William Stern, and they were actually famous philosophers and psychologists in their own right. And so he was, I guess, from birth, part of a certain educated class, like that, that kind of layer. Um, he studied his PhD under Husserl in Freiburg, and there he was also taught by Heidegger, and those are the thinkers who, I guess, had a really big influence on him early on. Then in the late 1920s, he got married to Hannah Arendt, of course, who is a very famous thinker in her own right. That was a short-lived uh, marriage, I guess. It was overshadowed by the, by the changing political situation and under this changing situation at the university. So for a brief time he was based at the University of Frankfurt with people like Adorno and he was trying to do his habilitation project there so his I guess second PhD you would call it in the German context um, but then the kind of Nazi rise to power changed everything and he was forced into exile um, in exile, um, he first ended up in Paris, where it's not quite clear what he was doing there, but he definitely continued to have aspirations to become an academic. So he maintained contacts to Walter Benjamin, who's also a kind of distant relative of him. He went, uh, he met Sartre, Levinas, this, like Levinas actually translated one of Anders's early texts into French at that time. So there's all that lineage. And then, as he ended up in the States, he was part of this wider emigre community of, you know, German emigre, German Jewish thinkers and, and uh, poets and literary figures. So there's a really dense network of thinkers he's related to. Yeah, so he's embedded within this very eminent and, and influential group of thinkers, practically from birth. And he, he wrote nearly 30 books in his lifetime, many of which were celebrated and, and very widely read. But in spite of all this, he sees himself as something of a marginal figure and an untimely figure, as he puts it. Why does he see himself in this way? I think that really has to do with academia as an institution or the university as an institution. So unlike his, I guess, famous contemporaries, he didn't really have a university career. And this was deeply affected by Hitler's rise to power, but also he didn't have the financial means to support himself as an independent intellectual. So in these whole years of, of exile, he was working a whole set of odd jobs. Uh, so in factories, at film studios, all sorts of menial work, whilst I guess his colleagues or what do you, whatever you want to call his networks, 
they often had the means to write and to meet and discuss, like kind of to maintain a kind of university culture in exile. And this situation for Anders became quite permanent. And he adopted a writing style that would be quite accessible. And he had a kind of a moral sense of obligation that his writing would be accessible to the wider public. And as a consequence of that, um, he would often write about technologies much earlier than the famous philosophers would, <laughs> but still they would often in academic circles become celebrated for their ideas, even though Anders was kind of there at times decades earlier, right? And not really acknowledged in the intellectual kind of universe until I guess the late 1990s when his work was picked up in universities and there's been this, I guess, ongoing wave of Discovery is the wrong word, right? Because people were reading Anders widely, but just not necessarily at universities. And this all happens after he dies. He, he died in 1992? Yeah, he died in 1992. And I guess, again, this possibly has to do with who he was as a person. So he would not shy back uh, of kind of seeking dialogue or seeking a kind of public confrontation is not quite the right word, but he would call out his contemporaries, his kind of the professional philosophers, as he would call it. And he would kind of challenge them to take a stand or to re respond to certain world events um, and kind of attack a certain attitude and the pomp, I guess, of universities and caricature it in his writings. So, I mean, I would not like to publish alongside on unders. <laughs> whilst he is still around, right? Because it would be quite uncomfortable, I guess. He would have been right at home on philosophy Twitter. Maybe or maybe not, given his No, uh, definitely, yeah. His yeah. <laughs> but but then but then we have this critique of, of technology and which we'll we'll get on to. Maybe via his writing on television, because as an early critic of the role of technology in modern life, he singled out television as being particularly pernicious. What did he have against television? I would say it's kind of a love-hate relationship. He's clearly very fascinated by new technologies. So even though his work is very critical, he's actually always very early to think about the technologies, to use them, to interact with them in that sense. I guess television is singled out because it might more than anything mark the transition into what he portrays as a post-literary world. So a world in which the somehow written word and the kind of act of reading and imagining things for oneself is being replaced by a new medium that delivers ready-made kind of content that we are encouraged to consume. And in the course of television, he tracks this strange kind of societal transformation. So he says, you know, in order to become a TV viewer, you kind of need to change all of your habits. You need to rearrange your living room. You need to sever ties with your friends. You need to stay at home. And then you need to switch on this box. There you will watch the same thing as everyone else. <laughs> and in doing so, you will give a lot of power to the people who operate television stations, to advertisers, politicians, all these kind of things. So he's, he, he likes to portray it as a world turned inside out. So you're kind of employed at home to transform yourself into the kind of being who can't live without television, <laughs> right? And in doing so, you're empowering all these kind of authorities and institutions to feed you with the world instead of going out and experiencing yourself or having your own ideas. So that's the kind of big picture. Um, now, in terms of what he portrays television as, so that the 
chapter in which he discusses it is called or translates as the world is phantom and matrix. And by matrix, he means something like a template, right? So the television provides the template for your own life and it, it kind of formats how you see the world, how you see yourself. And I guess a really good an analog to that today would be something like the interface of your computer that, or of a social media site that already kind of prescribes how you're going to present yourself, how you're going to, what possibilities you have. So those are the kind of things he's thinking about. And I should say at a time in which television was not yet widely introduced. So again, that goes back to what you were asking about untimeliness, right? He was kind of a, ahead of the time. Yeah, ahead of his time in his own time, but also seemingly right on the ball about things that are happening right now. I mean, he, he dies on the brink of the internet age, but what you were just saying about the way in which via television we hand over so much power to the companies that run television, it's, it's that sense in which we become the product, you know, which is now a very familiar idea with social media. Do you think that he would look at our contemporary digital media landscape and, and sort of recognise the same malaise that he identifies in his writing on television? I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's something very uncanny that happens when one translates Anders into English, because one ends up um, discovering the language of the internet. So, you know, things like the feed, the big feed of images is what, what he describes television as, or the server, you know, we are being served with stuff. Um, he talks of a self-expression racket, right? We need to share everything, this pressure of showing our lives to everyone like when he talks about reality TV, he's fascinated with the idea of small screens that somehow render the world less threatening and cute and make us feel comfortable, but are ultimately a sign that we're being excluded from, from a lot of things that we should be part of. Um, and what he calls the oligarchic concentration of power. So automatically there will, just through the kind of infrastructure, power will be concentrated in ways that are kind of undemocratic. And so in that sense, I think a lot of his work is so uncanny to read today, precisely because it seems to be written about the present. So, so much so that sometimes when, you know, when I come across students working with this material, they actually think he's writing about the internet or social media, even though he's writing in 1950. So it's a quite uncanny kind of transference. And it shows that something in the way he framed that intersection of technology and emotion, how, how it feels to be interacting with technology, was really showing a tendency that is still shaping how technology is developed today. Yeah, one line that really jumped out at me was where he writes about the way that technological objects appear to be less than they are. And that really makes me think of the smartphone, you know, which you look at it, it's small and, and sort of palm-sized and it just looks like a useful communication device or something that delivers entertainment. You can stay in touch with your family. It's all great. There's a kind of innocence around it, but he would see so much more going on there. This sense in which the phone appears to be less than it is. I just find that really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think in terms of, that's a great example actually to illustrate how his thinking works. So he talks about technological objects you know, like to say they're no longer phenomena, right? So you can't do a phenomenology of technology because when you look at them, they just seem ordinary. There's nothing to see. But actually, if you start thinking about the way they transform the world, 
our own lives, our habits, our thinking, they clearly have a much bigger impact than they occupy in our own kind of conscious awareness. And I guess it's this escape of technology, this way in which we kind of integrate technology into our sense of self, even when we, you know, I say, I'm going to call you later, even though it's the phone that is going to make that call. <laughs> so that kind of bracketing out of technology is the key phenomenon, I guess, or one of the key phenomena that his thinking is kind of propelled by and fascinated by. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and Chris Muller from Macquarie University in Sydney, who is currently engaged in translating the work of the 20th century German philosopher Gunther Anders, who I like to describe as the most interesting and important thinker you've possibly never heard of. Chris is very keen that more people should know about Gunther Anders, and I, for one, support that mission. So do keep listening and also make sure you check out the podcast about Gunther Anders that Chris Muller has been involved in more on that a little later in the program. I want to ask you about a really fascinating period in the life of Gunther Anders. In 1936, he arrives in New York, having fled Nazi Germany via France. And one of the first things that he does when he gets there is to write a script for a Charlie Chaplin movie, which, as it turns out, doesn't get picked up. Then in 1939, he moves to California, and for a time he works in the Hollywood film industry as a cleaner for a costume company. It all seems like a strange move for someone who's such a critic of the media technology of his day, although, as you say, he's, he's fascinated by it at the same time. So what's he doing here? Why does he place himself within the movie industry? Is it just because he needs a job or is there some sort of deeper calculation behind it? At the time, um, he would have been an aspiring poet. <laughs> so that's how he arrived in, in, in the States. In Germany, before his kind of exile, that's what he was most known for, like published poetry. And I guess he wanted to stay in this creative industry and he saw, and he saw great potential in the film industry at the time. So there's actually surviving movie scripts in which he tries to activate the medium of film to somehow confront America with what was happening in Nazi Germany, right? Um, America at the time wasn't in the war. So he says, how could we use film to kind of shock the American public or give a better appreciation of what is happening. So he's really interested in the way, you know, these technologies create new possibilities to, to engage a, a public. So I think that's partially why he's fascinated uh, about the movie industry. It's also got to do with connections. A lot of emigre thinkers were based in Hollywood in that industry. So he had some connections and there's some correspondence where he's asking, hey, could you show this script to X, that kind of thing. But then of course he was also not allowed to work. So he was classed as an enemy alien once the war started. Um, he, well, that's how he describes it. Um, his German citizenship had been revoked. So he was working these menial jobs. And I guess the diary you're referring to are the kind of the texts that we have from that time that are diaries recording some of these experiences, they document this precarity and they try to think about the absurdity how someone who had really been at the heart, I guess, or had a very like stellar career as a philosopher ahead of himself was now working in the 
tuna factory and in, in kind of the prop factory and, and all this kind of uh, work that on some level would have been deemed menial, but which is being transformed into some kind of productive catalyst for ideas. Tell me more about that, because the diary, which is published under the title Washing the Corpses of History, it's not a straightforward diary, but it's it's not a work of philosophy in, in any sort of traditional sense either. What is he doing with that? I mean, it's it's quite an extraordinary text. He, he's and he's doing more than just recounting his you know his day to day activities, isn't he? Oh yeah, absolutely. So the diary form is one of the I guess stylistic inventions that he adopts in a in an effort to convey philosophical thought to a much wider kind of readership, right? To make it accessible beyond the walls of the university. So he talks about his own diaries. I think the comparison he makes is to microscopes and telescopes, right? You can look through them to see something about the present, as he said. So they're not really meant to be historical kind of records. Um, They're written as a kind of mix between a literary genre and a philosophical text. Um, That particular diary is a philosophy of history of sorts, because it recounts how in this Hollywood prop factory, um, costume factory, he encounters all the epochs of European history and world history, right? From the beginning of time, from like cavemen all the way into the present, you have all these costumes, the whole history that is being reworked and restaged for film. Right, so he's thinking about the obscure or the paradoxical experience. Now, that's the kind of philosophical, I guess, strand of it. Um, there's obviously also the connection to exile, because he says there's an added irony that a lot of the employees in this Hollywood studio are um, emigre academics. So you have like the expert on ancient Rome who had to flee Nazi Germany, who is now making these costumes and tries to be as accurate as possible. And I guess when we worked on the script that we realized that there was so much humor in that. So it's redemptive humor or a, a type of kind of trying to document the real paradox and contradiction and surreality of it all. It's interesting to consider also, whether he was writing in some sense about the destruction of European culture, which was happening in a in a literal sense in Germany or right across Europe at the time that he was working in this costume factory, but also was there a sense in which he was looking at the transformation of European culture into entertainment, into Hollywood entertainment? I mean, at one point he he, he writes about having to polish some replica Nazi stormtrooper boots. What what does he do with that? Because that, that's a really, really interesting image. Yeah, I think that's really one of the the things that Anderson's thought does so amazingly well, that it constructs these very unexpected parallels between something very materially violent and very obviously um, destructive to patterns of thought or behavior that share a similar tendency, but which you would never kind of recognize without the help of this diary, right? Without the insight that it provides. And it's really the the parallel between, oh, Hitler is destroying European culture and rewriting it. And the same is in a way happening uh, in Hollywood because Hollywood isn't quite happy in, with how it was. You know, they want a kind of a more, a, a more impressive version of the European past. They want it to be bigger, better, um, more medieval, more antique, all those kind of things to kind of say, 
the past is kind of disappointing or, or European culture has come out disappointing. If we want to sell it, we need to kind of turn it into something sellable. And for him, that's really the shift. Something has shifted with the advent of these technologies. Culture is no longer there as a kind of a, a thing we inhabit and live in. It's there as something that is sold to us, that we're stuffed with, that kind of thing. And that's really one of the shifts his work is documenting, troubled by, trying to think. So it's not just a critique in the negative sense. It's often also an attempt to understand and, and ask, how could we use this differently? Let's talk about his major work, which is titled in English, The Obsolescence of the Human. Uh, it's a collection of philosophical essays published in two volumes, uh, the first of which was in 1956, and then the second one comes out in 1980. There's there's way more to talk about there than we have time for, but I'm I'm interested in the title. I mean, why does he see humankind as as obsolete, or or in what ways? Yeah, so the title of the German is the Antiquiertheit this mentioned. So Antiquiert means, I guess, antiquatedness or obsolete, um, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the post-literary, right? So the, I guess, Western tradition of thought gives us this image of the human as a thinking, feeling I that we're very familiar with. And in, in, in German culture, this would be the kind of the human of German romanticism, Faust, you know, the, I am overwhelmed by the world. I'm trying to kind of get to grips with it. And he's saying, this is really an image of the human that is completely or that appears to be very antiquated in the world that we have ourselves created. Um, so we are outclassed by our own objects. We have um, that essay on Promethean shame that opens the volume starts. We have somehow internalized the values of machines. We, we regard ourselves as badly functioning machines. That's the way we talk about ourselves. We could be better, improved. So the tragedy for him becomes that we, in our attempt to kind of come to terms with what it means to be in the world, we have created technologies that are increasingly excluding us from that world or prescribing how we have to be. So that's really that massive philosophical shift, or I guess it's not a philosophical shift, he's saying the philosophical shift required hasn't happened. We're still re relying on ideas that date back to you know, ancient Greece where people were throwing spears and weren't interacting with televisions. So I guess in it, tries to expose that there is no constant human, that there is not this eternal human being, human nature that could be separated from the environment and technologies that it creates. There's an interesting tension in that work, I think, between what he sees as the diminution of the human, but also a certain elevation of the human. At one point, he, he writes, we are the first titans, we are also the first dwarves. What's he getting at there? Yeah, that is um, another really key tendency in that book is to to think these tendencies. And he's talking about nuclear weapons in that particular instance. And the nuclear device is for him the perfect example of it's the most extreme machine, right? It gives you this godlike power. But the moment it arrives, the power is so vast that everyone is actually exposed to the threat of annihilation. So you're controlling this power, but this something comes into the world that somehow diminishes your existence or prescribes certain ways of being. And it's that double tendency that he ascribes to technology as such. So in a sense, 
nuclear weapons are the exemplary machine, even though they have an exceptional power, right? They connect us all. We're all living in a world that has these devices in it. Any decision made about nuclear weapons will affect everyone. Yet at the same time, it's possibly the most undemocratic device you can ever uh, imagine, right? It, it, knowledge about it is guarded secretly. Um, only very few people have power to to shape the technology, what is developed, how it is used, all those kind of things. He also writes about a, I don't know, you, you might call it a failure of evolution or an, an incapacity of the human imagination to really grasp what it is that we have produced with, with these technologies. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I mean, I, I think at one point he talks about the, the incapacity of our imagination to grasp the enormity of what we can produce and set in motion. That, that's another it strikes me as a very prophetic insight on his part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think here we really get to the, the heart of why his thought kind of managed to stay relevant or stay relevant beyond its time. So he comes out of a school of thinking that is called philosophical anthropology. So the basic idea is that we have evolved to rely on technology. So this, So technology in this way of thinking is not something alien or separate from nature or the human. We are artificial by nature. So we need to remake ourselves after our birth. You know, we have to turn ourselves into new beings. And he says there's many different ways, many different cultures, many different ways in which this can unfold. But the path we find ourselves is turning to ever more powerful machines to do so, right? And even though I can still this takes us back to the phone. I can use my phone as if it was a tool, as if it was a fork or knife or something like that. And, you know, and it feels completely ordinary because I have an evolved capacity to interact, to, to borrow the abilities of the phone and perceive them as my own. But at the same time, what the phone does or is completely escapes my anatomical capacity, right? So this is in a sense hard to grasp, but not at all because we precisely turn to computers because they can calculate better, right? And they can do more. So even our technology kind of signals that we're anatomically limited, that our senses are finite, that there's only so much we can feel, do, or understand. And he's saying, well, technology has no such boundaries. And because we kind of rely on our senses, we're constantly blind to the kind of boundless power the working of technology, what it does without us and the kind of worlds it creates. And one of the key tenets for him is that it's not the use of technology that um, is the ethical question, but its existence. Because the moment something is here, we will try to use it. We will, there will be trial and error. We'll, we'll figure out all sorts of ways in which it might be useful to us but it might have all these unintended consequences that only years later become visible. So he has this beautiful image in the obsolescence of the human that is anticipating the carbon footprint in a way where he says, we're all much bigger than we are, right? But at the same time, we're much smaller because we don't feel that we're doing anything of consequence, right? But we're gonna leave this massive legacy. Every one of our acts has these potentials that we're not aware of. Yeah, and I think when we look at climate change in this in this context, we also come up against this idea of the incapacity of the human imagination. You know, we we're unable to extricate ourselves from the technologies and the modes of production that are cooking the planet. But 
when we try to imagine an alternative to consumerism and market capitalism, we, we just seem to come up with nothing. Yeah. And I guess, again, that has to do with the way that power is structured in Anders' thought, right? Where he would say, well, it's not a moral failing <laughs> that you're not imagining this. It's precisely you cannot imagine it as such. It is. It has become, in a sense, physiologically impossible for you to keep hold of the consequence of every one of your machine interactions and the whole chain of production that might lead to. And for him, that's not a kind of an excuse, right? He's saying, well, that's that's not an excuse to not confront this unseen. But normal human ethics, the ethics that relies on how I feel when I do something and how my acts might be perceived, is precisely the thing we seem to have engineered away. <laughs> and precisely because it's so recalcitrant, because it creates so much friction and it's inconvenient to people in power, that kind of thing, technology is imposed or created or presented to us as a solution, which is actually switching off those kind of impulses. So the kind of way in which he tries to confront this is often precisely by confronting us with this escape, with this kind of, have you, are, are you really aware how unaware you are, <laughs> right? And have you ever confronted that? And it's your task to confront yourself with that fact. I want to talk a little bit about Anders' style because style is a very important aspect of his work. And um, you mentioned that in the 1950s, he, he turns his attention to uh, the nuclear threat. And in that turn, he adopts a new style of writing or a style of writing that's different from, from his previous works. What's he concerned with at this point and, and how does his style reflect that concern? So he starts off as someone who writes really in the philosophical style of the 1920s of his time. So if you read his early work, it's really like, Heide like reading Heidegger, Husserl, very, very technical. Then in the time of exile, he develops much more this diary style, this more like kind of, that kind of mixes genres. And then really when it comes to the obsolescence of the human, which is, I guess, a marked shift in, in the way his writing operates, he adopts a method that he calls philosophical exaggeration. And um, in one of his texts, he compares it again to microscopy. And he says, well, if a virologist uses a microscope and exaggerates the size of the virus, is he also exaggerating the danger or is he making the danger or visible or, or she, right? And so his style becomes this kind of method to make something visible that is invisible. So it's very, uh, I guess you could compare it to something like caricature in, in kind of or cartooning, it's kind of exaggerating the shape, the contour to reveal the tendency, reveal the danger. Is he also in, in some way... In, in adopting what, what seems like a more narrative style, is he trying to occasion something in his readers, which is more than just an intellectual response, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think he's very consciously presenting this book as a book for people who might already be watching television, right, or, or listening to the radio. And it works really in images. It often constructs for us an image that we can kind of be immersed in, or it has a little kind of dialogue inserted or something like that, that is like a, like a scene, a situation that we are part of and that we're implicated in. And it often tries to activate, I guess, our resistance to an extent. Uh, so as a reader, you're constantly at a point where you're like, no, that can't be or something like that. 
only to then kind of be caught out and to to be shocked. Oh, that's that's the kind of parallel or that's the thing I'm supposed to experience and see. So I guess it adopts that really immersive style that goes back to a lot of his film ideas, actually, that he develops in, in the 1940s. Does he envisage a way out of the catastrophe that we've unleashed for ourselves as, as a species? Do, does he hold out any hope for, for freedom from our enslavement to technology, do you think? It's a very difficult question to answer because often his work is strategically pessimistic in the sense that uh, that he will say, well, I don't want you to hope because hope means that you're leaving action to someone else, right? And I don't want you to think that things are okay because otherwise it's this kind of invitation to not confront that reality. But I, I do think he is exercising a way in which he exposes the structures of technology to call for a different relationship to technological objects, right? To kind of say the way they are created, what is created, um, who creates them, all these things are the actual ethical questions of our time, not how should technology be used? Because at that point, it's already far too late, right? He says, then, then we're kind of saying that philosophy and politics, they only come once it's already a thing that has been achieved, right? So he's trying to flip that whole like kind of process of development. In terms of like <clears throat> individual ethics, so I guess the, the traditional realm of interpersonal ethics, he would, um, I guess, encourage humans to realize that we already have technologies that also expand our reach of feeling, right? If, if something like a, an atom bomb or complex technological objects kind of detach us. We also have technologies that kind of humanize us. And he calls that, like music is a great example where you're given more feeling, not fewer feelings, right? And the same with literature. So he really invests in those kind of what he calls almost spiritual exercises of trying to catch up with the world you're part of, trying to kind of use those media to somehow come into touch again with the human proportion, as he calls it. One thing that interests me about Nandes is, is that he's one of the leading philosophical figures in Germany. Um, the Obsolescence of the Human has been very widely read in Europe since it was published. It was a bestseller before any scholarly attention had been paid to it. So all that being the case, why isn't Anders better known outside of Europe? And why have English translations of his work been so slow in coming? Yeah, that's a really difficult question, actually, because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I can answer it fully. So on one level, it certainly has to do with its slow uptake in the university. In terms of like scholarly translations, the kind of work that is appearing now, that becomes possible I guess from the year 2000 onwards, something like that, once there is a substantial literature in German and then soon after French. Now, a lot of his work is kind of available in English in bits, sometimes translated by his then wife or by himself in very kind of Germanic English. And there was one book in particular that created quite a lot of controversy uh, when it was published and it's called Burning Conscience. And it's a conversation with Claude Ifele. Claude Ifele was um, the weather reconnaissance pilot um, of the mission against Hiroshima. And 
He later committed all sorts of crimes, like he robbed banks to donate the money to the victims of, of Hiroshima. And Anders has this exchange of letters with him and says, you are really, you know, you're the only one who feels the guilt that we should all feel because you're only one in this completely faceless process that leads to the destruction of Hiroshima. And, and at the time, that was written in the late 1950s. It was translated into English or is available, was originally in English, I think, even. And it, it created quite a stir. So it was a, a book that was also discussed in, in like the American press. And, and he was obviously not considered as someone who was politically sympathetic to the United States. So there was a lot of, uh, I guess, political baggage during the Cold War that may or may not have impacted it. Um, I am aware that there was English translations of his works that Anders didn't like and just said, no, you can't publish this. This is not the style or the language I would want to do. So there's, a, there's multiple layers to the question that you're asking. Well, just finally, Chris, you've been involved in the production of a really great podcast, which is sort of rooted in Anders' work, but also takes his work in a whole lot of interesting directions. And I would recommend anybody, as soon as they've finished listening to this conversation, they should go and listen to your podcast. Tell us about that. Yeah, no, thanks. It was a fascinating project. It's a kind of a lockdown project in a, a sort. Um, so together with Benjamin Nickel at the University of Sydney and Helen Wolfenden, a colleague here at Macquarie, we came up with this idea of dramatizing one of Anders's diaries. I guess we've spoken about the way in which he was trying to give the reader a certain experience. And we thought it would be really nice if we could make this come to life. And we picked this Hollywood diary, the one that we briefly mentioned, precisely because it's such an evocative reflection, uh, such a multi-layered um, and interesting representation of his thought. We very quickly realized that all the things that Anders was warning about when he was thinking about technology, that you would always have to reinvent how something feels, was very true. <laughs> um, so we had to write a new script. And that's why the podcast now runs under the title, Real is Not Real Enough. And I guess that's a reference to the way in which you know, the real experience or the real reality is not the kind of thing that sells. So we need to have this uh, better version. And yeah, we recorded it in a very kind of fitting manner via Zoom to Berlin, where a German actor performed the diary. And then we had a whole companion podcast uh, alongside that. That is actually, there's still episodes, I think, uh, coming out where we're just catching up with, or where my colleague Helen is hosting um, conversations about Anders with some, some people are Anders experts, but there's also people who are not really related to Anders and are kind of reacting to his ideas, just to unpack some of the layers of his thinking. And I guess the, the real goal was the ability to experience his words and experience the kind of images that it opens up for us. It's it's so great. Uh, highly recommended listening. And um, Chris Miller, it's been wonderful to talk to you for The Philosopher's Zone. Thanks so much for coming on the program. No, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and talk about Anders. I very much enjoyed it. Chris Muller, Senior Lecturer in Cultural Studies and Media at Macquarie University in Sydney. And for much, much more on Gunter Anders, check out the podcast Real Is Not Real Enough via your preferred podcast app. 
And this has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. You can find us via the ABC Listen app, where you can also find The Philosopher's Zone back catalogue, as well as every other ABC RN program. And you can find me, David Rutledge, on Twitter at David P Zone. For now, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens with Twitter over the next little while. Thanks so much for your company this week. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.